Hello and welcome to Writing on the Walls. I'm your host, Rob Lavati. Today I'm joined by Heather Bonner of the Mission 34 Foundation. Mission 34 aims to eliminate the stigma around mental illness through awareness and education largely on college campuses. In addition to having started Mission 34, Heather is also a survivor of suicide loss. On this episode today, Heather shares about losing her son, Sean, to suicide in 2018 when he was just 20 years old. We talk about the immediate impact of Sean's suicide, both on his college campus as well as with his family. Heather talks about how undiagnosed concussions may have prompted a shift in Sean's mental health. We talk about the stereotypical toughness that is associated with sports and athletics. And finally, we talk about Mission 34, some of their events and chapters, as well as their motto, which is a new type of tough. I really appreciate the work that the Bonner family is doing with Mission 34. You can check them out at mission34.org or on Instagram at mission34spb. And with that, let's get into it. Today's episode is brought to you by CNC Resourcing. Dana at CNC provides one-on-one business coaching, customized training seminars, as well as continuing education around creating safe spaces for transgender and gender non-binary folks. Dana is actually who I use as my business coach, and I would recommend her to anybody who's looking for some help jump-starting their business or just looking for some pointed tips on how to take their business to the next step. You can check them out at ccresourcing.us or check out the link in our show notes. Hey, Heather, good morning. Good morning, Rob. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Looking forward to chatting with you today. There's a question I'd like to start out with before we get too deep into the conversation. Um, So we're here today primarily to talk about your your son, Sean, who I know you lost to suicide in 2018. And to, to get started, I'm hoping you could share with us what you would say are some of the most important things you learned either either from Sean while he was here or from losing him to suicide? I would say from him and from losing him, he was a really kind hearted person, kind to strangers, kind to friends, kind to his best friends, kind to his family. Um, That is the resounding kind of description of him that sticks with me. And I try to be a kinder person because of that. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a great answer and seems to be really common in, in having these conversations. It seems like often folks that we lose to suicide, loved ones that we lose to suicide are very kind and, and gentle and sensitive people. Um, and it, it sounds like Sean was as well. And I know that uh, Sean was heavily involved in sports and was a leader in that way. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I know that's something that was really important to to his life and to his story. Um, yes, from a very early age, he was a typical boy. Uh, any ball you could give him, he was uh, entertained. But 
His passions um, through until middle school were were football. He played top, Pop Warner basketball. He played with the church league, and um, one of our best friends was his coach for a long time. He played with the same kids on the same team um, year after year, created this great group of kids that were very close to one another. And um, and then baseball started, kind of skipped over T-ball, but went right into coach pitch from an early age. And um, that was definitely his, his passion, I think, long term. Um, as he got into high school, he decided to focus more on baseball, which is really a year round sport. Um, so football got dropped and, um, but he loved basketball and we have a basketball court in our backyard. And, um, that always seemed to be the sport he could do by himself. Um, he would play games, but he'd go out and shoot for hours in the backyard, play around the world with his brother and and father. And um, so sports was definitely an important part of his life. And, and all through that, he played golf. He was a good tennis player. Um, really anything that somebody offered to do with him, um, he would take advantage of it because he had no fear of trying new sports and participating. And um, I think that it was a great sense of community for him um, being among around other kids that felt the same way about the sport as he did. Uh, so he had a, a really good time. And because of that, a lot of our good friends um, were the parents on sidelines of those activities. So, yeah. Mm, very, very cool. So it sounds like just an, an all around athletic guy, which is something I am not, but um, <laughs> I'm wondering if, if with that, do you feel like there were some high expectations that Sean put on himself with, with being a leader in the sports that he was playing or excelling in all these various sports? Do, do you feel like he had high, high expectations of himself? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think Part of that started um, with the expectations of coaches um, and of himself from an early age. And that expectation grew and grew. Uh, you know, he grew up in this environment of typical coaching of the time that, you know, if you fell down, you, you shake it off, you get back out there. And um, he shook off, I think, a, a, along with a lot of other players maybe pain they had or, or injuries they had in order to get back out there and show that they were tough. And it, the, I think that in, drew the expectations to go even higher on them. And um, they were so, so many high expectations on himself. Yes. Mm. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think that's uncommon. I think especially mm -hmm. in male dominated sports, I grew up playing baseball and I can remember, I can remember one game, I was upset about something. I don't know. I was 11 years old, so I was probably upset about a lot of things. But I remember crying during the game, and I got benched for being emotional. Mm -hmm. um, so I definitely know what you're talking about in that sport culture, um, this idea of kind of keeping things to yourself and focusing on getting through, you know, that idea of no crying in baseball. And right. um, so, yeah, I unfortunately don't think that's uncommon. And I think that's messaging that we get a lot as young men. 
Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that is starting to shift and we're starting to be encouraged to be more sensitive and in touch with our feelings, but it's taking a lot of unwinding and intentional focus to get there. Absolutely. I, I can't believe I didn't start with this, but you know, I, I think the, the primary thing that brings us together today is both of us being survivors of suicide loss. And, you know, while, while I really hate that for you and for your family and for Sean's friends, I am grateful that um, that is something that we can talk about and understand um, as part of each other's story. And with, with that in mind, I'm wondering if you could take us through that time frame. I know um, Sean went off to, I believe it was Denison College and he was a freshman there playing baseball. Um, take me a little bit through that time and what that time was like for him being away from home, uh, now playing sports at a higher level. Um, what, what do you remember from that time for him back in 2017, 2018? Uh, yeah, I, I think ultimately he wanted to play a sport in college and as high school progressed, it turned out that it was going to be high school. It was going to be baseball, um, because he was a six foot four strong guy uh, with a great pitch um, and a lot of experience around the game. So he was perfect guy to play in a division three program. So he could experience college as a whole, not just 24 seven of the sport. Um, and I, he went off to college feeling confident. Um, we felt that he was in going to be in a perfect school for him. Good size, um, good academic rigor, but manageable, um, a good baseball program where he would get time. And everything started out great in um, in the fall of his freshman year, um, 2016. But we found out after he died that um, he had fallen the November of 2016. And we believe he sustained a concussion. Um, we it's you know, not documented because we had no idea. Um, we think because of those high expectations he put on himself that he was afraid of losing his spot on the team if he said anything. I mean, concussion protocols, when you get them in high school, they they bench you for, you know, as long as it takes to be cleared. I think he was afraid of, of losing his spot. And mm -hmm. so he didn't say anything. So um, we really noticed a change um, after November, and we didn't really understand why. Um, we brought him home when he was acting funny, but he said it was um, during a lifting session when he was lifting weights that he had pulled something in his neck and that it was giving him a headache when we think that it was uh, it was the fall that caused this. So from that time on, I think he got really good at hiding um, what was going on, uh, ultimately hiding his pain, um, self-medicating, uh, covering it up the best that he could uh, until he couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Mm. I'm wondering what, what specifically you noticed. So it sounds like November 2016, he had this fall. He might have sustained a concussion and... I can definitely imagine what that must have been like for him. This idea of, I, I can't tell anybody about this. I'm going to lose my spot on the team. 
Um, that combined with the pressure and the high expectations that come with being a freshman in college. What were some of the things that you picked up on that kind of set off that flag of like, something's not quite right here? Um, well, it started really, I guess, December of 2016. No, it was right around Thanksgiving. And we brought him home because he wasn't making sense. He wasn't remembering conversations that he was having with his roommate and his roommate brought it to our attention. So we brought him home um, and saw a neurologist, but because he hadn't been forthcoming with what had actually happened, they never did a, a test of the concussion to see if he had one. They didn't even they didn't know to ask the questions, I guess. Yeah. Um, but we noticed that when he went back to school, uh, his grades were suffering. Uh, he uh, was having a, a hard time sleeping. Uh, he was complaining of headaches, which, you know, we thought typical college, you know, boys, their schedule gets a little off. They grow facial hair, they wear wrinkled clothes, you know, the typical um, acts of, of boys not being at home under mom's eyes of doing laundry and making sure they're eating right. properly. And so over time, I think, you know, immediately within that first year, there wasn't a lot to see other than he was struggling a little bit academically. It was the second year that was... Cons more concerning. Um, his physical appearance started to change. He went into the spring season of 2018 and he wasn't playing that much. He was complaining about his shoulder. Um, it turned out that he had uh, an injury and um, didn't get a lot of playing time, which I'm sure led to even more disappointment and, and not meeting those expectations he had set on himself. The summer before he died, he was not home. He spent the summer up with family in uh, Boston working. So we didn't see him on a day-to-day -day basis for a long time. And I guess he started to show signs, uh, definite physical signs. He, he lost weight. He wasn't working out because of his injury. He'd grown his hair. He was wearing a beard, um, just things that he hadn't normally done. And I guess towards the, the end, he was excluding himself. He was becoming more isolated, which was very unlike Sean. Sean was always with people, loved being with people. He was he made people laugh. Um, he joined in in activities, whether it was athletic or, um, you know, college parties. He was in a fraternity. Um, he loved being around people and to see him pull back and isolate himself was very unusual. Mm. Yeah. I, I definitely hear you in terms of, especially maybe with hindsight, noticing some of these changes that were definitely out of character for Sean. A couple months ago, we had uh, Dr. Amanda McGow, who I believe you know, on, on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And one thing she said on, on that episode that really stuck with me is, you know, we're just not that good as a field at predicting who's going to die by suicide. Mm -hmm. And anytime somebody does die by suicide, yeah. 
I feel like the same things are said, you know, the risk factors and the warning signs that we have to look out for. And they're always pretty black and white, right? Like they'll talk about um, somebody talking about not wanting to live anymore or um, somebody isolating and not enjoying the things they used to do. And, you know, there are these fairly obvious things, but I, I've noticed, especially when it comes to men and even young men, as you mentioned with Sean, it sounds like he got pretty good at hiding maybe where he actually was. So some of these things that we are taught to look out for in someone who may be dealing with suicidal intensity don't always present in the moment and they're not always very clear um, mm -hmm. the way they make it sound like it, it should be. It's always these more subtle changes. As you've mentioned, is his appearance started to change. Maybe he wasn't as um, active and outgoing as he normally was, where any one of those things on their own may not be concerning, but it's when they all come together that it starts to be like, what, what's actually going on here? That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and also I think a parents, well, as parents, we would be more in tune with seeing all of those changes, but he was away at college and the, it, college kids don't know this. They, they don't know the, the combination of all these signs of someone they truly just met in 2016. So right. to see those changes there, it might be normal. I think part, some of those changes aren't typical of boys going off to college and experimenting a little bit. I mean, he was in a private school his entire childhood. Of course, he wants to grow a beard and grow out his hair because he was never allowed right. to, right. Um, you know, and then their sleep pattern changes, all kids sleep pattern changes in college. But if you pull together all these signs in combination, um, like you said, that's where you notice a big change. And I think the time between us seeing him, we noticed them, but when we asked him about it, he had some pretty good excuses um, or answers. And that's that's why we missed it too. It's like Amanda said, it, it's really hard to determine what's a college kid going, experimenting, going through changes versus somebody who's in crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Un unfortunately, it is it is a fine line and it is something hard to detect in, in the moment. You, you mentioned a little bit earlier, and, and I'm wondering if it's something you'd feel comfortable discussing, um, that at certain points, Sean may have been dealing with what he was going through with self-medicating. I'm wondering, is that something you were aware of at the time or did that become obvious? after his death what uh is it first is that something you feel comfortable going into and and if so uh kind of wondering what that experience was like for you i think the mission we're on right now is full disclosure in order to help others see i love that someone else struggling um so yes i i'm happy to talk about that it, i think in high school, in the beginning of college, it's typical for boys to go to parties and, and have a little too much to drink. Um, uh, marijuana definitely came into play, but we didn't see it. It was still very much hidden from us. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when he, after this accident, we believe the um, alcohol intake increased significantly. And I didn't know about any drugs, but um, we've been told afterwards 
that he had definitely self-medicated with uh, marijuana and some other uh, some other drugs. We noticed a problem with the drinking uh, the summer before he died. He, I guess, went on a bit of a bender over July 4th weekend. He was not here, um, and we found out about it by someone else, and that was cause for concern. The problem with self-medicating, we believe now, is it it makes them escape from their pain in the moment. But if it gets so bad, if if he is so um, you know drunk, then they make very bad decisions and they can't remember and they black out. And oh. then the next day when they sober up this shame that is attached to their behavior is overwhelming and not knowing what he was going through. I believe how we spoke to him created even more shame because we were embarrassed by what he had done. And um, we know he was embarrassed himself. So it's hard when you don't know the full picture of what's going on and the shame that they already feel to pile on that, it is so hard, so hard. And, you know, we didn't know until after the fact that that's what he was going through. And yes, he he ended up going back to school after he had shoulder surgery. So he was even more out of sync with his life there. Um, he was not with his baseball team. He was not working out in the gym. Um, we felt that exercise was a great release for him. And now he wasn't doing that because uh, he was injured or recovering. And I think he was in a lot of pain in his head. So he was self-medicating um, and all of that combined. He just did was outside of his normal friend group um, and isolated himself. And um, to escape that, I think he, he was drinking more and he ended up um, definitely showing changes of personality, which we didn't see, but we heard about afterwards um, when someone couldn't serve him because he was definitely overserved and became belligerent and argumentative. And that was very, very different from his personality. Mm. And then he, he ended up um, being arrested and, and that was the shame attached to that was huge. Um, and that was really two months before he passed. Wow. Wow. I, I appreciate you sharing that with me and being vulnerable. And I, I really love how you started that, which is this mission of full disclosure, which is really hard. Uh, it's, these are hard things to talk about, especially when we're, we're talking about our loved ones in less than ideal circumstances. But, you know, around the self-medicating piece, I think what makes that so challenging is that it actually works pretty well um, until it doesn't, right? I think you, you nailed it perfectly. It's, it's an effective mechanism for uh, numbing and making pain subside, mm -hmm. at least in that moment. Um, mm -hmm. it's, I mean, I'm speaking from experience here, having my own experience self-medicating with alcohol and cannabis and other drugs throughout my 20s um, to deal with depression and, and suicidal ideation. So I, I know from that experience that there came a point where the pain was just too much to bear 
and I found tools that seem to be helping. And once you find a tool that seems to be helping, it's hard to look elsewhere. It's hard to look for things that might help more, but take longer to get there, like therapy and like getting on appropriate medication from a doctor. And these are all things I knew I could have done, but I needed an immediate fix. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, like, like you said, you wake up that next day. Now you have this compounded shame on top of what you were already feeling and dealing with. There's the shame of maybe behaviors that came out while you were self-medicating or just from the idea of self-medicating itself, because I think while we're doing it, we know it's not the best solution, but it's the only thing that seems to be helping, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it is definitely complex and very challenging for someone to be stuck in that cycle. It's something I know my dad uh, did for a long time to deal with his depression and underlying mental health conditions that were never diagnosed because he never sought out help. Mm -hmm. And for him, it was alcohol for uh, about as long as I can remember my dad self-medicated with alcohol. And, and one thing that we know for sure is that he was drinking on the day that he took his life. Um, We know that because they found a a bottle of vodka uh, with him when he was found. And that was at the time he was, about six or eight months sober from alcohol. So, you know, I've often wondered how much of a role that played that he obviously drank that day and was dealing with the overwhelming shame of having drank. You know, I I really wonder how much of that played into the pain that he must have been feeling when he made the choice to to take his life. Very similar to Sean um, over the July 4th, he um, had that episode with drinking. And um, I really believe that he decided not to drink after that until he got back to college. And then it turned into that terrible night where he got arrested. And I am sure that the weight of that shame and embarrassment was overwhelming, which probably continued the cycle of continuous self-medication. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine. Yeah, especially for someone who has high expectations of themselves. And yeah, he, he it sounds like he may have been disappointed with, you know, the way things had gone. Mm-hmm. Something I'm curious about, um, again, from from my own experience, I know when I was in college, we we had a classmate die by suicide. And it was almost like a little bomb dropped in our community. Um, I went to a pretty small school, under 3,000 undergrad students. Um, so for that to happen was pretty shocking. It was the first time I really uh, heard of anyone even close to my network dying by suicide. You know, there was the police investigation, there was the messaging that the college put forth about the suicide. There were news articles. I mean, there, there was just a lot going on and it was, it was overwhelming um, to, to see that unfold. I'm wondering if there was any of that as well with Sean understanding that he was, um, he was away at college when he died by suicide. Um, I'm wondering if that experience was, was similar for, for him and for those, those folks around him. Uh, well, similar to him, he had never lost anybody. So um, we didn't have that connection. There was um, a death by suicide uh, a year before Sean's from another student at his high school. 
Um, but we didn't know that family didn't know what they'd been going through um, until Sean died. And then all of a sudden you're in the same club, which you don't want to be a member of. Um, with regards to um, the community he was in up at Denison University, it was a very small liberal arts school. So there was a high percentage of kids that knew him. So when he passed, it, it was a, a, a shock wave that went across the campus. And unfortunately, um, with social media the way it is, um, he went missing um, on November 7th and his roommates were concerned about him because they were supposed to be going to class together. And he said, oh, I'll catch up. And he never showed up. And they obviously were concerned about him to the degree that they wanted to go to class with him together. Um, but they sent out a notice school-wide asking if anybody had seen him, which immediately raises red flags for everybody. Yeah. And, and then they did the same thing when they said they had found him. Um, the, the entire school campus was in shock and on alert. And then we barely got to our son to tell him uh, about losing Sean before friends of his were chiming in social, you know, via text, which is really scary to find out from a friend that knew about the loss of your brother before you did. Oh, so I, I think, um, thank God that didn't happen, but it was very close. And uh, I would caution schools when they go to send these notifications that they're very careful about it uh, because that, th that shock went across the community very fast. Yeah, and then he had a strong group of friends here in Charlotte. Everybody came in. It, it was really shocking to everyone. None of his friends had any idea that he was struggling like this, that he was going through something like this. Um, his best friend had reached out to him um, by phone and hadn't heard back. Well, that's because Sean lost his phone five days before he died. So it's another source of isolation by losing that phone. So it, it the shock waves through the community, it, whether it was here or up at Denison, were were very hard felt. Mm -hmm. I hope that answers your question. No, it does. It does, and I'm I'm just picturing what that must have been like with the the message going out as fast as it did, and you trying to get out ahead of it to make sure his family knew what was going on. That seems like that's one of the first things we have to do when that happens is make sure that everybody finds out in an appropriate way. Yeah. And um, that had to be really, really difficult to see that spread as fast as it did. It was, it was very yeah. hard. Mm -hmm. and, and you talked about how shocking it was for his friends where they didn't even know, you know, anything was going on or that he was struggling which I, I have heard time and time again, and that's really scary to know that we could be that close to someone and have no idea that they're they're going through this to to the extent that they are. Um, and it's just made me a lot more intentional about checking in on the people in my life. Mm -hmm. Even if I just notice a little small thing, like a friend or a family member who is drinking a little bit more than they normally do. Mm -hmm. 
just asking about it. It's uncomfortable. It's uh, it's weird. It's clunky. It's uh, there's no graceful way to do it. But just letting people know that, like, hey, I noticed this this difference, and I want you to know that I care about you, and I'm wondering if anything is going on that you'd like to talk about. You never know what difference that could make if someone is having a hard time or if someone is going through depression or contemplating suicide. Just having that real conversation and, and checking in is something we're not taught to do, but I think can be really effective with making someone uh, feel that they're not as alone as they may feel they are. Mm-hmm. Well, I think a lot of this starts from a very young age at least while we were growing up, the stigma stigma that was attached to talking about your feelings and your mental health. Um, I mean, athletes in particular, they're, they're not supposed to cry on the baseball field. They're not supposed right. to show their emotions, maybe some anger, which we try to, you know, keep at a minimum. But um, that stigma is one of the hardest things that we have to to work through. Um, and we're trying to do that as a mission and talk about it. Um, I think being a su- survivor of someone lost to suicide makes us more brave about asking those difficult questions. And our alert is so much so much more heightened because of what we've gone through that we will ask those questions. We notice those changes with people we care about and we'll ask those difficult questions. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's well said. And to your, to your point of the stigma associated with talking about your feelings and emotions and how heightened that is as an athlete, I think we saw that unfold just a couple of years ago with, with Simone Biles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she was very open about dealing with some some deep, complex mental health issues, and I think pulled out of a competition because of it. And she was ripped apart for that decision and for her vulnerability, which mm-hmm. was crazy to me. I think that was so strong that she was able to do that in such a public way. And it was not received well by and large, which uh, has to be scary for for anyone who saw that happen, who might have been in a similar place. The message was, oh, maybe I shouldn't be open and vulnerable about this because look how it went for her. Right. Extremely courageous of her to step forward, um, almost representing her entire um, athletic world, definitely in gymnastics, to say something and stand up for herself and go against, I'm sure what she'd been brought up to toughen it out and don't complain and get back out there to compete. It it obviously got to a point where it weighed too much on her and she needed to say something. And I applaud her for being so courageous and showing that strength to say something. Um, you know, Mission 34, that, that's our tagline is uh, a new type of tough. It's to have the strength to ask for help. And that is a sign of, it's a sign of strength, not weakness. Yeah. Yeah, v- very well said. And I think that's a good segue into talking about your foundation, which, as you mentioned, is called Mission 34. It was started in in honor in honor of Sean's life and as as well as his death by suicide, and I love that tagline, a new type of tough. I, I think that is just so succinct and well said, and I think you're demonstrating that new type of tough by starting this foundation in the first place. 
Um, I can't imagine how hard that has to be as a parent, losing your child in the way that you did, but to be able to take that pain and reshape it into purpose, I think is just so incredible and admirable. And um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Mission 34 and what, what the mission and the vision is of this foundation and the message that you're looking to put out there? Thank you so much. Um, I appreciate you giving us the opportunity to talk about it. Um, so Mission 34 was um, started right after Sean passed. Um, his last number was number 34 on the baseball team up at Denison. And our mission is to eliminate the stigma surrounding mental illness um, through awareness, education, and communication. And our target audience are high school and college age kids. And how do you communicate with them? Well, usually by social media. Instagram is our main way, you know, main way we do it. I, I try to talk about limiting social media because I think it has an impact on their mental health. So we're trying to use it to the good by communicating uplifting or educational messages around um, mental wellness. So we started um, with a chapter, Mission 30 chapter, Mission 34 chapter up at Denison. Um, it is made up of ambassadors from each team that come together on a regular basis. Um, in order to be an ambassador, you're required to take suicide prevention classes, which we offer twice a year. We have uh, awareness events, um, Angel, the Angelversary Walk in memory of Sean is in November, and Denison does their own walk up there the same day as we do here in Charlotte, uh, as well as there's a chapter on the campus of Miami of Ohio, and we're looking to expand. The whole point of us doing this is to engage with students, to bring them together, to raise awareness around talking about your mental health and creating a safe space uh, to enable those more in-depth conversations. Um, we are currently working on a curriculum that we are testing out right now at Denison. We're hoping to roll it out in the fall for a whole school's calendar worth of um, discussions about different sections of wellness and, and boundaries and um, how to care for one another. Uh, and to create a more in-depth conversation so that they, those ambassadors can take that information out and hopefully share those conversations with their teammates. That's the ideal, is to create a community that feels open and um, safe about talking about mental health um, and encouraging them to have this the courage uh, to say something if they're struggling or to help somebody, give them the signs of what to watch for in others so that they can talk to that person and help them find help. Mm. Um, so that, that's what we're doing on those campuses. We also go to uh, local colleges. We've been to South Carolina and uh, UNC Chapel Hill. I'm going to um, NC State in a couple weeks um, to talk to different 
whether it's a fraternity or sorority or NAMI that's on campus at UNC about the signs and symptoms to watch for. I feel by telling our story and giving specifics about Sean's path that kids are more likely to listen and recognize, wow, my friend is showing this, 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 and this, that I should be concerned versus thinking, oh, it's just a kid at college going through some chains and hopefully give them the language to be able to ask more in-depth questions to, to have a safe conversation with them so that that person feels open to um, say if they're not doing well and to help them get help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do uh, our biggest fundraiser, which is really our biggest awareness event, is a kickball tournament in August that's here in Charlotte. Um, we had over 200 people here last year, and it was it was great to be out playing with um, a group of boys that he went to high school with. They're the ones that pulled it together the first year, and it's an amazing event, again, around awareness and being able to talk about um, mental health. Mm-hmm. I love that. Is that something that's scheduled for this year? Uh, yes, we just put out a save the date on our Instagram. Um, our Instagram is at mission34spb, which are Sean's initials. Um, it's going to be the fifth on the fifth, the fifth annual kickball tournament on August 5th. And it's open to any age, any people. Um, there'll be more information in June when registration opens up. But it's usually an amazing event. Very cool. Well, I I would love to join you for that. I'm not too far away from Charlotte. I am a miserable kickball player, but I would love to come out and support and be and be able to meet folks who are close to Sean. That sounds that sounds really inspiring, and I'm really glad that you've been able to do that. And and I love that you're you're going right to the source of what you feel as being a big contributing factor in what led Sean to keep this bottled up, which is this upbringing in sports that teaches us to keep it bottled up. So I love that you're addressing that, going straight to college campuses and sports teams and providing them training and education about not just how to talk about these things, but how to ask about them. Mm -hmm. And I think that is absolutely key. I know the AFSP, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention has a program that they call Real Convos. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've found that to be really helpful because it's not that we don't care about the people in our lives. I don't think we have the language for Mm -hmm. asking if someone's okay or if they need help or even just telling them that you've noticed something is different. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think programs like that and organizations like Mission 34 are helping us develop that vocabulary. And I think we're realizing that we don't have to overcomplicate it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's this idea that we're so afraid of saying the wrong thing mm-hmm. that we opt to not say anything at all, where sometimes all we have to do is just be an open ear for somebody and just ask that initial question to let them know that it's safe for them to share with us what they're going through. Mm-hmm. When I when I go out and talk to the kids, um, it, it is really teaching them to create a quiet and safe space for that person to be able to open up and to not be afraid of silence. Ask a question and don't be afraid of the quiet for a while while that person is putting down their 
their boundaries and opening themselves up a little bit um, so that they're not so guarded. And it's really hard to teach kids to enjoy, not to enjoy, but to take advantage of silence. And it's, it can create an amazing, amazing conversation. Um, if you just let that other person talk and you be the good listener. It, I understand for high school and college age kids, this is a very difficult subject. Um, you really don't understand it until you've lost somebody. Uh, on our website, uh, mission34.org, we have a resources tab and we've done a lot of work on it in order to give people some help on how to start some of those conversations um, and hopefully give them the language. And that's what we're trying to do is to give them some language to be able to ask the diff difficult conversation questions, um, as well as seeing the signs and, and that's our mission right now um, with visiting these different schools. Uh, I love that. And I will definitely link that in the show notes for anybody who's curious. I'll put the Mission 34 Instagram in there, which I think you do a really great job of managing. And, and I love that you're, again, taking advantage of the tools that are out there. That That is the way to get to the population that you're looking to communicate with. I'll also put your website in the show notes. Um, with this resources tab, which I, I took a look at before the conversation today, which is uh, immensely helpful to have that information out there. Thank you. I'm, I'm curious what uh, what some what are some ways that I or folks who are listening can get involved with with Mission 34. What are some ways that we could help out? Um. Well, it's growing, which is really great. Um, we are actually working on a curriculum to roll out um, next year. And I think for very specific needs to reach out through our website, there's a contact tab to, to reach out um, specifically on people that can possibly help with a website. Um, and then it goes all the way down to volunteer opportunities, um, whether they're helping on a college campus uh, whether they're encouraging their their kids to bring us on their college campus um, or they're volunteering to help at the kickball tournament or a walk that we do. So th it, there's a huge range of <laughs> help we need. Um, we just take it one step at a time. Excellent. Yeah, I'm looking forward to being able to get involved in whatever capacity I can. Uh, I, I think it's really awesome what you're doing and I, I really admire and appreciate it because it is important work and who better to do it than folks that have been through experiences like we have. Mm -hmm. um, I, and like you said, I think people are a lot more likely to hear the message and take it seriously when it's coming from someone who's been through it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It, it, it weighs even more. Um, I think we, are driven because of our passion around this subject now Yeah. Uh, after yep. losing a loved one. Um, so it's, it's an everyday thing. Um, we're willing to talk about it to whatever length anybody wants to talk to us about it, um, especially if it's going to lead to saving a life ultimately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. I'm wondering not to put you on the spot, but if, if you have a message that you would give to someone who is struggling right now, someone who is dealing with depression, 
um, or s some other mental illness, self-medicating, feeling isolated, not knowing how to talk to someone or even that they can talk to someone about what they're going through, what, what message you'd have for them? Well, depending on the crisis they're feeling, I would definitely reach out to somebody. If it's a child or a young adult, I would reach out to an adult, somebody that they trust. Um, I'm, we are full believers in therapy. I think therapists, you have to find the right one, but I think therapy is a huge help. If you need to talk to somebody right away, do not hesitate to call 988, the national, you know, suicide lifeline. Um, or if you want to text, it's, uh, 741741. Um, that's who you text and you text help. Uh, and they will start a conversation back and forth via text. There are a lot of resources out there, but if you're not in tune with them, you might not think about it. Um, we have a lot of those listed on our website under resources, but definitely 988 and uh, therapy. And there are some, you know, you mentioned it before, AFSP, um, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. They have a lot of information on their website. Um, and I would, I would look into that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's such an important part of the education piece of, of foundations like Mission 34 is there are all these resources out there letting people know they're there. You know, it's so easy to not even know that these things exist. And then when a point of crisis comes, not not know where to turn. Mm -hmm. So I think just letting people know about 988 and 741741 and AFSP and the American Association of Suicidology, um, there, there's just so much out there that I think all of us can be ambassadors of in just promoting these different resources. Mm -hmm. and, and we carry around our phones. So it's so easy to just have a tab in there, have a note in there of these different resources. And you don't need 50 of them. You just need a top couple of them. Um, yeah. One thing that I, I mention, and I don't hear anybody else mentioning, but I just think it's an amazing idea. Um, it's an app called Not Okay. And it was started by a brother and sister. Um, I believe the sister was struggling and the brother was very smart having to do with technology. And they created this app. And what you do is you pick your people ahead of time, whether it's, you know, a parent, a priest, a coach, a teacher, but you establish ahead of time who your people are and you set them up on this app and you communicate with them asking for their permission that if you have a moment where you are struggling, is it okay that I reach out to you so that you establish that uh, agreement that they will be there for you? And then once you have that all established, if you are in dire need of help, all you do is you push a button and it communicates with all of those people that you are having a difficult time and they're supposed to come to your aid and check on you and see how you're doing. And I think having that forethought of setting that up ahead of time is crucial versus trying to figure all that out when you're in crisis. Mm. I love that. It's like the digital format of a crisis response plan, which mm -hmm. is something we're taught to put together and going through mental health treatment. Mm -hmm. So when that when that moment comes that you need help, you have the plan already thought out and you're able to put it into practice. That's right. And that's just not okay. The letter's okay. 
I believe so. Yes. Okay. I okay. will also uh, get that link and, and put that in the show notes as well. I think that's great. That's not a resource I was familiar with. Mm-hmm. I just have one more question, Heather, that I would like to leave you and our listeners with. But before I get there, I'm wondering if there is anything else you would like to share about Sean or about Mission 34 um, or any questions that you may have or just anything that we didn't touch on that you were hoping we would. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Mission 34 is our is our passion right now. And we know that there are other organizations out there that have parents involved that feel the same passion that we do. Um, we encourage all of us to work together and um, that there can never be too much suicide prevention um, as it's being shown as an epidemic right now. And the CDC numbers came out a week or two ago. That is frightening having to do with um, middle school age children and that we as adults have a responsibility to do something, to start conversations, to know the signs and symptoms to watch for, uh, to have a list of resources so that they know who to turn to um, when they're helping somebody that might be in crisis. So Sean was uh, a very caring, loving guy. And he, I believe, would want us to continue this mission to help to help people have the courage to stand up and ask for help and being in the athletic environment that he was for so long he would want other athletes to do what Simone Bo- Simone Boyles uh Bowles did sorry Simone Biles did in showing their strength and the courage to be able to step up and ask for help and that there's no shame in that. I think he carried a lot of shame with him, with the actions he was taking towards the end of his life, but there is no shame, no shame attached to speaking up for yourself and asking for help. Very, very well said. Thank you. And you actually answered my last question, which is, you know, what what you'd want people to remember about Sean and what what I'm taking away from this conversation is what a kind, gentle, compassionate leader he was um, and that he is even now um, through the work that you're doing with Mission 34 and encouraging people just like him to be able to speak up when they need help. That is immensely powerful. And I am so grateful that you are able to do that work for Sean. Um, And just want to let you know how much I appreciate it because it is very important. And um, I I just think it's so powerful that you're able to take your pain and and transform it into purpose the way that you have. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we uh, feel good about it. Uh, I think he would be happy. And uh, when even one person reaches out and says that they learned something from us talking or one comment from a, an Instagram post that we did that meant something to them. I, I feel like we're, we're making progress and, and doing a good job. And, and all we want to do is continue that and continue to grow and hopefully affect more people by raising awareness. Yeah. 
Thank you, Heather. Well, I know this conversation today helped me and I think it's going to help anyone who has an opportunity to listen. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, catching up with you soon and striking out at the kickball tournament. That's probably going to happen. <laughs> it's a full range of uh, abilities, so no worries. We'll put you on a good team. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, Heather. Looking forward to talking to you soon. Thank you so much. Appreciate right. it. Have All a right. good Bye -bye. day. You too. Bye.